there, and welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. This is another episode, it's another week, and this one is with Declan Fahey. So Declan is a, a journalist, he worked for the Irish Times, the Daily Mirror, and the Longford Leader, which will uh, give a little hint to how I know Declan. He's a professor in DCU focusing on communications and journalism and he's also a published author in 2015 his book the new celebrity scientist out of the lab and into the limelight was released and as i touched on longford he's a friend of mine when we grew up together in longford so that uh, certainly helped in the conversation and made it all the more enjoyable so i'm purposely keeping this intro quite short so that you can get straight into the conversation i have added a very detailed overview of the conversation in the show notes that you can read and have links to the many many books that uh, Declan recommends for your potential enjoyment so check that out I really hope you enjoy the show as I said Declan being from Longford it was a great treat to to chat with him about his journey so far yeah why not uh, enjoy the episode with a with a bottle of uh, St Mel's beer another link to to a Longford show that I did a couple of weeks back uh, that was episode 18 so maybe check that out but uh, most importantly enjoy the podcast with Declan Fahey thank you and enjoy so welcome to another episode of the one percent better podcast so this one is a bit of a first for me in that I'm interviewing a I was going to say childhood friend. That's what it is, really. Um, Declan Fahey. Declan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rob. Delighted. Thank you so much. I may refer to you as Decky uh, during it, as as we're friends, if that's okay. That's no Um, problem. So, I was reading your bio, and I... Was one question I'm looking forward to getting to later on is your uh, is the work life balance because with the bio there seems to be a lot of stuff going on that'll be a an interesting one. but I'm really looking forward to talking to you in this kind of format. It is daunting a little bit for me <laughs> talking to a, a journalist uh, and one that has lots of experience. Um, so go easy on me, you know, just guide me through it. Um, but I'm looking forward to hearing your story, getting it out there. Um, so maybe just give yourself a little bit of an introduction or, or how would you define yourself right now and what, what you do? Sure. Thanks, Rob. I'm, uh, uh, I teach and research uh, here in the School of Communications at DCU, um, where I teach mainly classes in journalism and communication, political communication, uh, and I do research uh, around these areas. But when I do research, I really am interested in, you know, how scientific and environmental ideas are communicated and how people come to understand uh, issues in science and the environment. So that's how I kind of, uh, that's the main part of my work now. Uh, in in a former in a former life, I guess I was a as a journalist, mm-hmm. and that kind of was my first love, my first passion uh, before I moved into being a full-time researcher and a full-time academic. Cool. And definitely want to talk to you about your book. Um, we get into details on that. What I'm fascinated about is the whole process of putting a book together. Sure. And I think if there's anyone listening that wants to write a book, you know, there's certainly 1% better tips there, uh, but there'll be lots of other lots of other good stuff. So we're both from Longford, Deck. I'm Indeed. still very proud to be from Longford. I oh, hope yeah. you are too. Yeah, of course. Of <laughs> um, course. But what always struck me when we were growing up was uh, it seemed like you had a very clear view of what you wanted to do. I'm, I'm in your office and I see, I took a picture of this when you were just going to the toilet there, so <laughs> of about 300 books. And I do always remember um, books being 
pivotal and central to, to you growing up along, along with your football career playing uh, you know for, for Teffy Park and uh, and uh, being a Spurs supporter which which we won't get into right now but um, I remember actually when I was driving up just thinking about it I think you gave me the Hobbit at one stage when I might have been about 10 I was like I got to page 6 and says like there's no pictures here so I just put it away and still have never read it thankfully they made a movie out of it now but uh I'd love to talk, or we want you to talk through, you know, the early years. Um, and I, again, another thing I remembered, you were born in Zambia, right? That's right, and that's I correct. I see some facts, right? So I didn't have yeah. to do certain points of research. But <laughs> I'll stop talking now and let you t- kind of take sure, us through sure. in the uh, early years. Sure, uh, the, the the Zambian point is interesting because uh, people ask me, oh, what's Zambia like? And tell me a little bit about it. And uh, the fact is, I don't remember anything. Yeah. I only lived in Zambia for three months. Right. Um, my parents uh, had gotten married um and wanted a bit of adventure. They wanted to do something differently. Uh, my dad is, a, uh, they're both retired now. My dad uh, was a teacher and my mother was a nurse and they wanted some adventure. So they uh, went to Zambia, uh, mm. he to teach and she to be a nurse. And I think, I think initially they went out to stay for like a couple of years, but right. they just really, really loved it and ended up staying for about a decade. Wow. And this was a kind of a golden period, I think, in modern history of the country, Zambia, because it is become a democracy it was kind of a flourishing kind of country it had lots of mineral resources it was before you know hiv and aids which has sort of devastated the country since then right. so they really caught it at a kind of a golden golden era and a golden period uh but unfortunately my birth brought all that to an end and they fortunately yes <laughs> so they uh they moved uh back to our back to ireland uh back to longford where my dad is from the and where my dad grew up and uh so that's where we, we grew up since then and it's interesting you mentioned the books because uh, uh, books are a huge part of my life. But growing up, they they, they were as well. I mean, my mum and dad were voracious kind of readers and yeah. they read a lot. And there was always books around the place. Mm. And so, uh, you know, my dad encouraged me and my brother to read from a very, very early age. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. And I just kind of took to it, I guess, mm. when I was very, very uh, young. And I really, really enjoyed it. And that has never left me. Mm. So this kind of love of books and love of, of reading... And um, I suppose when you start doing it at a very early age, uh, you end up working in an office yeah. surrounded by books, I guess. So it's been a it's been a nice uh, pattern nice, all the way through. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Most definitely. Interesting, just as a tangent there in the last few years, the proliferation of Kindles and Audible and like has has that changed your habits of digesting books or do you still very much go for the physical Form. Um, I I change around a little bit. I, I uh, you know, a lot of my work now is reading, and uh, I tend to buy books that are re- that I need for work. Right, ones that I reference regularly and look back on regularly. They're the ones I tend to kind of buy. Um, for my more kind of day to day reading, um, I used to buy a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to buy way too much. Yeah. So you know, even my old childhood bedroom at home is. Got a ton of boxes full yeah. of old books that I one day plan to, to sort through. Yeah. So for that kind of day to day reading, um, I tend to go to the library an awful lot mm. and, and get stuff. I I tried Kindle for a while, um, and I just didn't I, I didn't enjoy the experience of it. Mm. I mean, I spent a lot of my day looking at a screen. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think in the evenings uh, it was just more screen time. Yeah. And I think uh, I didn't enjoy it as much. I didn't kind of get immersed in the books as much right so i kind of went back to the hard copy but i think that's uh, a trend mm. now in the industry more widely that there has been certainly i don't know about audible uh, but around ebooks and things like that yeah a lot of the 
I guess hype or expectation around ebooks hasn't really come to pass. Right. I mean, people still like physical objects mm. to hold and to read, yeah. and that kind of relaxing experience that people mm. uh, seem to get out of books. Yeah, that's certainly a constant. But that said, I know people who haven't read a, a print book in years, but yeah. will be reading two, three books a week on yeah. their Kindles. Yeah. Have you tried Audible? Uh, I haven't actually. No, right. no, no. Okay. Uh, I tried it last year for the first time. Obviously, been massively into podcasts. I thought Audible would be the next step, and when I'm driving or yeah. you know when you're working out, you could actually listen to it. Find it very difficult to stay with it. At least with podcasts, you can drift in and drift out and be almost doing something else. With Audible, you tend to have to stick very much focused on what you're hearing because you might miss something. And you end up having to reverse back 30 seconds or something. And I just found myself going over and back. Even I was lying on a, by a pool on a holiday one time. And I was, this is my first audible book. And it was tough. So No, I, I, I totally get that because I'm used to reading. And yeah. So it's, it's weird trying to get a narrative through listening. It's kind of different. Mm. The, I have listened to some books and uh, not through Audible. Um, just books on iTunes. But uh, I'm kind of drawn to books who have very... It depends on who's reading the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, for example, you know, say Bill Clinton's autobiography, and he reads it himself. Mm. You know, Clinton's got this beautiful voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very expressive, and it kind of brings you into it. Yeah. So I think actually listening to Bill Clinton's autobiography is a lot better than reading it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because okay. you just get this extra level in it. Visualization, maybe. In a little bit well, of visualization, like... but just, uh, you know, it's him and it's his accent. And, you know, when he's talking about different things, you can almost see him doing it because yeah, yeah, yeah. it's him. It would be weird if somebody else was reading yeah. Clinton, for example. Yeah, yeah. The first book I, I did listen to was a tip from Tim Ferriss. Yeah. Uh, shout out, obviously, listening. But uh, the the Graveyard Book by Neil Gaiman, have you oh, heard no. that one? I, I know Neil Gaiman, but yeah. I haven't read that one. And he, he reads it. Oh, really? And he has a brilliant voice, yeah. very kind of, lots of intonation, very, very cool. But anyway, sorry, we're going off topic there, but it's kind of <laughs> right. no interesting. Problem. Yeah, um, of course. So back in Longford, growing up, yeah. obviously your dad was a huge influence with the, the books and your mum as well. Oh, yeah, um, indeed, yeah. When did you start, through those early years, start to think there could be a career in this for me? And when did maybe journalism become something yeah. you could... You know, it's funny, it's kind of, you know, you know, uh, you know, we both went to Mel's and, you know, we're... You know, the Irish education system, you do a ton of subjects for mm. your junior cert and your leaving cert. And, you know, the idea is to give you a nice rounded education. And that's that's really, that's, I think, the right way to go. Yeah. But I found myself always kind of gravitating towards, you know, English or history or, um, you know, economics. You know, the type of subjects that were more bookish, I guess, mm -hmm. you know, rather than say a lot of the yeah, science yeah. or maths kind of stuff. So, you know, in school, I tended to move into those kind of areas. Yeah. And... You know, as you go through secondary school, you start thinking about a, uh, a college degree and what you want to do. And, uh, you know, I was really considering doing history as a degree or English as a degree or an arts degree that could combine the two of them there. Yeah. Um, but I, there was something about journalism. I loved the kind of practical mm -hmm. element of it. You know, I mean, that you, you know, you didn't have to commit to studying history for three years. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I was interested in a lot of things. And one of the things that attracted me in journalism is you could dip in and out of different mm. kind of topics and write about them without, you know, going the long haul with any of them. Yeah. And uh, so that was one thing that really drew variety. So the, the variety drew, drew it to me. And I also, um, uh, I remember reading again, books being a huge influence. I remember reading, uh, uh, a book by Tom Wolfe, who's a very well-known American journalist and fiction writer. He wrote this classic book or edited a classic book called the new journalism. Okay. And what he did, it, it was published in, like, you know, it came of age around the sixties and seventies. 
But basically, Wolf, what he did was took the techniques of fiction and applied them to journalism. Okay. So you had these pieces of journalism that read like little novels or short stories. Right. You know, they were gripping, there was a narrative, there was drama and tension, but there was all true. Okay. It was all kind of reported detail. And that was just one of these. Just like today. Just like, yeah. Well, this is where a lot of it kind of started. Right, so right. This was one of those moments where it was like, oh my goodness, wow, this is... You know, it, it it showed me a completely different way of thinking about. And this journalism. was groundbreaking at the time, was it? The way the, when, the when it came out, took on, when right? the book yeah. came out, I think uh, I think it was the early seventies. I think when it came out, um, it was enormously influential okay. and continues to be influential, right? And uh, to this day, but it's kind of it's been so influential that it's been assimilated into just how journalism is taught and done, right? That often its origins are forgotten about. But that was hugely influential for me. And what age were you when read that? I think. Uh, Ah, oh, I think it was maybe 17, 18. Okay. And also I was, uh, at the time I was reading tons of books by, uh, you know, the American author, he, he passed away now, Michael Crichton, you mm-hmm. know, Jurassic Park mm-hmm. writer. And he wrote a, a ton of books and I loved them. I kind of devoured them all at the time. Right. And it's weird coming back to what I write about now, but he, his books were really good because he kind of, you know, he was right on this boundary between the humanities and science, right? right? He wrote these thrillers, but they were always about science or scientific topics or scientific ideas. Mm. You know, Jurassic Park being a huge one, uh, the Andromeda strain about kind of like this virus that's going to wipe out humanity. Um, he he was just a great storyteller and his stories were full of ideas and mm. it made you think about things in a different kind of a way. Mm. He's, he's, towards the end of his career, he's, his reputation fell a little bit because he kind of, had some unorthodox views on climate change and global warming that sort of dented his legacy a little bit. Right. But, uh, he was a huge influence on me um, because I think I just read him at the right time. Mm. You know, these things are often yeah. fortunate. You just read a book or mm-hmm. a couple of books at the right time and it kind of crystallizes your interest. So um, all that kind of reading at the at the time and I decided, no, journalism is the thing for me. I want to uh, do something where I can read and I can write for a living, but mm. that's sort of in the world and practical. Yeah. And so well, that, that led me to journalism. So before you came to DCU, which we can talk about in a, in a second, um, just from the fact that we were both here at the same time, 22 years ago, which is bizarre from walking around here for the first time in that duration. Did you do any articles writing when we were in secondary school? For some reason, I don't remember. You weren't no, working for the, no. you didn't get a job with the Longford Leader for the summer. No, no not, not at school, but uh, uh, while I was at university, I did. We've talked about that in a little while. Uh, but no, 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 it wasn't. It was kind of, um, it was sort of only in the, like, you know, the last year of Leaving Cert. It really crystallized, crystallized for me. Okay. It was all kind of English, English, English before that. Mm. But I saw journalism in many ways as being sort of applied English. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And did um, your dad and your mum encourage that path, I oh, guess? Oh, yeah. No, they were, they were really good about stuff like that because... Um, you know, they never pushed me in any particular kind of direction. Mm. And, you know, journalism has always been a kind of a difficult career. I mean, there's no definite career path or it's hard to break into it and it's hard to sustain a career into it. Yeah. And being good at school is not just being academically good. It's not the only thing that can predict how well you'll be as a journalist. Yeah. Um, and I think at that time, the mid was mid-90s when we did the Leave Insert. Mm-hmm. I think like the Irish press had just closed. Mm. So there was lots of, oh, you know, why on earth would anybody be a journalist now? The papers are closing yeah, uh, and all this kind of stuff. But no, no, my parents were very encouraging. And once I wanted to do 
uh, whatever I wanted to do, they were hugely supportive of it yeah. and always have been. Cool. So journalism was number one in the CEO? It was number one in the CEO. No yeah. doubt you got your number one pick here <laughs> in DCU. Yeah. So 95, when we bought the, the, the Leaving Cert came up here, um, what was that experience like? First time essentially probably getting out along for, for, for a period of time, coming up to the, the big smoke at, the, at you know, 95? Well, it's you know, completely daunting because... You know, when we were young, you'd go to Dublin for a day or something like that. It'd be to shopping. The zoo to the zoo. Whatever, yeah. <laughs> shopping before Christmas or something like that. Yeah. So I remember uh, it, was, it was good like that. My parents were kind of, you know, hand up, like kind of hands off about stuff like this. So, you know, I got the train up from Longford and I arrived in Connolly Station. And it was like a Sunday night or something like that. And it was lashing rain. Mm. And I had my huge rucksack. And, you know, Connolly Station, you're walking up Talbot Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is... You know, an interesting street. 22 years ago would have been more interesting yeah, probably. Yeah. Like, yeah, 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 so it's late at night, it's raining, it's dark, it's Talbot Street, you're coming up to O'Connell Street, you have a clue of the bus system and all this kind of stuff. So it was quite daunting. Michael Guineys was there. As Michael Guineys was there, yeah. That's always daunting, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I was very tempted to tip into Guineys, but it was closed, you know. Right, so, right. Uh, But that was, uh, that was kind of daunting. But then, you know, you start college, you know, everyone's nervous as a first year, right? Yeah. And, uh, but... You know, quickly enough made friends because there's lots of people all in the same position and mm. come from all different parts of the country, all into study journalism. So I mean, you like you end up making friends quickly. Yeah, and they're all obviously there with similar interests, so you have a lot of like-minded people together straight away. So you've yeah, it seems like that. Yeah, yeah, it's not as it's not as kind of you know studying journalism. It's not as d- diffuse, I guess, as if you're studying you know, English or history or something like that where you got lots of different kind of backgrounds. Everybody was pretty much into the same kind of boat, which, mm. which was good. Yeah. It was good. So you fell into the groove pretty quickly. Uh, well, I think I think I found first year kind of hard. Right. I enjoyed it and it was good and everything, but it was just, you know what it's like, same for everybody. It's so different. Yeah. Um, you know, you're a little bit more on your own. You're a little bit more doing your own thing. Uh, and I found that at the start, hard at the start. Yeah. And it took me a little bit, little bit of time to get up to speed on things. But, um, I think it's uh, the the big thing about uh, first year was just kind of getting settled into college and mm. realizing that uh, you know there was a ton of stuff to read, there was a ton of stuff uh, to do, but it was more kind of getting to know people mm. and getting to know different people, mm. uh, and I think that I enjoyed right. most of all. Yeah. But the thing in in first year that really helped me was actually back in Longford again and. Uh, it was, uh, I applied, well, I didn't apply for a job. I wrote to the Longford Leader right. asking, you know, could I get, could I go there for work experience? Yeah. And, um, was that part of the, part of the, no, it wasn't just part of the course, just something I kind of did yeah, myself. Yeah, cool. And, uh, you know, Longford Leader is one of the best, best known provincial newspapers. Yeah. At the time it was edited by Eugene McGee, mm-hmm. um, who everybody in Longford knows and yeah. fans of GAA will know as well from his, his work and his management in, in those areas. Mm-hmm. And Eugene was a great journalist and he was very nice to me because I wrote to him, he didn't know who I was, he didn't know anything about me. And I remember my interview was like, uh, was uh, three questions long and it was, uh, you know, Eugene is a man of few words and uh, he his first one was, so uh, you're from Longford? Yeah. Right. You're going to Mel's? You went to Mel's, did you? St. Yeah. Mel's College. I said, yeah. I did, yeah. And he goes, you're studying journalism. Yeah. Can you come in next week? <laughs> so that was my interview. Straightforward. So it was very straightforward. Yeah. Um, but I think the Longford Leader has always been really good with that. Even to this day, I see it with students. It it, it gives students a shot. Mm. It will, you know, the paper will bring people in. And, and local. And local people, yeah, of course. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing. So if you're from Longford and interested in journalism, uh, you get a good kind of, you get a good go there. Yeah. Uh, 
and that's what happened with me. And I, I, I started working there in the summer. So I've been in summer 95, I guess 96. But um, it's a small newsroom. Yeah. And I was allowed, they sent me out to, you know, do loads of reporting. Cool. Which is not always the case. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, I started there and I had only one year of college, like, uh, behind me. But I was doing a ton of reporting, right? right. So, you know, I, I think my my first article, and any journalist will tell you, the ne- you never get over the thrill of your first yeah. kind of byline, but it was at Longford Swimming Pool, down near, right it, beside Harbour Road, yeah, where, yeah, where yeah. you grow up. Yeah. And it was, you remember Gary O'Toole, the Irish uh, swimmer? Yeah. Olympic swimmer. Uh, he came to Longford for something. Right. I can't remember. I remember interviewing him, and it was okay. like, this was, oh my goodness, I'm interviewing a real Brilliant. sports star. Yeah. Um, so that was great. So it gave it the opportunity, and... You know, for a lot of, I did news and a bit of features, but I did a lot of sport. Cool. And was, did, were they just sending you out on these assignments randomly or were they, was there any, did you have any kind of pick of, the, of it at all? No, uh, no, no, it was kind of somewhat randomly, Okay. Uh, cool. but I started to do a lot of kind of uh, uh, sport, but like schoolboy, schoolgirl kind mm. of sport, kind of under, you know, under 10, under 12, under 14. Yeah. And looking back on it, it, it kind of seems, well, that's. You know, was that that's a kind of a strange introduction, but cut your teeth. It's there. a good way to cut your teeth because I learned a lot of really good fundamentals. Right. Right. So, you know, say I'm doing an under 10 ga match, right? Yeah. You know, little lads run around the ball is as big as their head and everybody yeah. just runs after the ball and there's no, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's no structure or anything like that. But you have to get, you know, 30, 35 names spelled correctly. Right. Get the who scored all the points. You know, these yeah, yeah, games yeah. are ridiculous. It's like, and, and they're, that's really important to that kid when he looks at it in the paper says I got one seven I actually got one nine and yeah you know, exactly pissed off and it was totally it crucial right yeah, yeah, so yeah. it taught good reporting skills yeah and attention to detail right and um you know you it, it taught you to, to write in a certain way like say some little kid made a bad mistake he don't write <laughs> you know little Rob O'Donnell is useless <laughs> start, right start slaving like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah no it wasn't anything like that so it was really really good training right. and um it's something that's kind of stayed stayed with me all the way through my at the career. time did you realize you were learning these fundamentals? No, no, not no. at all. Not yeah, at all. Yeah. But again, it was the same kind of thing. If, uh, you know, if you spelled the kid's name wrong, got his, his score wrong, yeah. the very next day, uh, one of their parents would ring in, ring in and, and, complain, like, yeah. and complain or something like that. And rightly so, because it's a big deal. Yeah. And uh, uh, so so that was a kind of a formative thing looking back on it. Cool. That kind of attention to detail and, and standards on things. It's popular. Um, just on that as well, like, do you remember the, the first time you were finishing your first article that was going to be published like how how meticulous were you were you being your own worst critic and that's what like did was there something around that that it's like anything you know you never feel it's good enough or was there a fear of you know you know how that would be received I, you know this is something i think we, we can talk a little bit about when we go on yeah, yeah, yeah. The book and stuff like that but one of the great things about journalism is that journalism doesn't allow for that right because uh the article has to be finished by a certain time to get okay. on, put on a page, the page has to be sent to the printers. So you don't really have the luxury. There's no such thing as perfection. So no, no, not right, at all. Okay. Especially even like it's, you know, in a daily paper, it was quite acute. But yeah. even on a weekly paper, you, you had to, okay. you know, and it wasn't that everything would be finished at a certain time. The deadlines would be staggered throughout the week. Right. So it was great training like that. Yeah. You, yeah, you yeah. wrote something, you finished it, you fact check it, make sure it was fine. And then it was, was kind of gone. Yeah, yeah. And that was great. Yeah. Because you didn't have the time for the kind of yeah, 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 to, yeah. to seep in. That's interesting. Um, and, and that is something that never changed for me throughout journalism I was always doing sort of daily news journalism yeah and one of the great things about it was it didn't allow for this huge amount of second guessing it yeah, was yeah, kind yeah. 
you have this set time to do it and you did it as best you could mm. and then it's cool. gone. No, Which in, in one sense was a, was a very good way to be because if mm. you're the kind of person to mess around with things an awful yeah, lot, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, 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 you end up not yeah. producing as much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. the sort of structure and the system around journalism mm. made sure you... Yeah, you got to to move things along very very quickly, and that was great training. Yeah, no, no. The only reason I'm asking, it, multiple reasons, but one is that, say, for example, at the moment I'm doing assignments that have a deadline of four weeks' time. I wrote it and I'm rewriting it and rewriting it. Whereas if you were on a day to day basis rolling something out, yeah, you just probably get more clinical with it as well, and you just learn to say yeah, and and probably you learn lessons faster than maybe as well if you do put something out and it isn't great and you feel. It's just, I suppose, more real-time learning. It is, and I found that as well. You know, little, little things like I'd be working on something and it wouldn't be quite ready, and the news editor would say, we need that now, Declan. And I'd be like, yeah, yeah nearly there. And he's like, no, no, no. It's we done. need this now <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. because they need to work on it and the, the other editors need to work on it, and I'm yeah. only a little cog in, in a bigger kind of system. Yeah. Now, I kind of forgot a lot of those lessons. Right. As I moved into academia. We could talk about that in a little while. Yeah. But in the early stages, it was very, very good okay. to... Um, get into this habit of producing things. Yeah. And, you know, as a, as a as a reporter, as a young reporter, you're no use if you're not able to go and do reporting and be accurate, write it up quickly and send it off. Yeah. That's part of the skill and it's a very good skill yeah, uh, to yeah. learn. And I, I kind of learned it at 17 in the Longford Leader. Great. And they were so good to me there. You know, um, John Green was working there at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's now a senior editorial position at the Sunday Independent, maybe the, the Daily Independent. He was really, really good to me. Yeah as well and would sit down with me and work with me on, on articles and things like that but it's one of those things where they gave me the opportunity let me go out and do it and then help me but it was they weren't holding my hand through it as yeah, well. yeah 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 it was, allowing you to fail a little bit I guess you yeah know? most yeah. definitely allow me to fail a little bit or or be you know at the start everybody at the start is sure. not great at all yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know I'm, I'm really thankful now that they saw something there that they could brilliant help yeah. Me work with. yeah so that sounds like an amazing first job and that was one of the kind of questions when you came back into second year the, the journalism was is it four years or three years uh, at, at the time it was four years okay yeah. yeah so did you start then finding your your niche or start formulating an angle you wanted to go in through the rest of the 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 the, the, the degree or what was there like did you was there an option to specialize in some way during the degree uh there wasn't a huge amount of options but that's one of the good things you were you could sort of pursue your own interests okay and kind of work out those interests within certain classes but i did a, a i did a class in second year that was hugely influential for me um and it was in uh the sort of history and philosophy of science right and you know i've been into science a little bit Michael Quinn yeah, and that yeah. kind of stuff and uh this was great this was like uh you know going you know into the history of of science and how Mm. are changing understandings of the world and different philosophies of the world and I really really loved it right. I, you know I really immersed myself in it it was a great course it was taught by uh, Professor uh, Helena Sheehan who went on to be my PhD supervisor and who I've been very close to cool. and has been a big uh, influence uh, on my career and so that kind of set me on the path of specialization I realized right you can start writing about science and the environment you don't have to be a scientist to mm. do it um, and that, and so a lot of my other assignments were tailored uh, around science reporting. After that, what do you think was the the draw or the connection, or was there any subconscious underlying? No, I think it, I think it just kind of. I think a lot of things kind of just clicked around it because, um, you know, the, I mentioned Tom Wolfe and his 
books about journalism. He did. A, he wrote a really wonderful book, which I read, I think, in and around the same time. It was, called, it was called The Right Stuff, and it was about uh, astronauts in the U.S. space program. Okay. So, and it was all nonfiction, but he, it's it's a really brilliant read, and it's great. So it was, it was about astronauts in space, but it was actually about America, and it was actually about, you know, national identity, and it was about the lives of the scientists and the public lives. So he brought all these different strands together, told this brilliant, compelling story that was about science, but it was about so much more. Right. Um, and that was another one of those kind of, that, that blew my mind, that book. Mm. And so I was reading that book in and around the same time as I took this class, wow. and they kind of came together, and I said, well, that's, you know, something like that is mm. where my interest lies, and I'd really like to go. Okay. Uh, and work on that a lot more. So, again, and this is a key kind of period, um, you know, the research around this, this this period around your early 20s when interest kind of crystallized. Yeah. Um, and that's that's the kind of way it, it happened for me there. Okay. So, as I went on, then, you know, my, my dissertation was on a, uh, was on a kind of scientific journalism. Right. And uh, then uh, all my other assignments were in and around this kind of area. So, I was... Not formally specializing in an area, but moving towards and that area. and that was fine. As in, it was it was allowed upon within the the degree. Oh yeah, you could go whatever which way. No, you they wanted were very, they were very good about that kind of stuff. And you know, people could you know do the same for sport if they wanted, or do the same for politics if they wanted as well. You, there was lots of freedom to tailor it uh, to your interests. Hmm. And 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 DCU was very good about that. You know, it had a ton of really good courses, but within those, you had the freedom yeah. to do what you wanted to do. But I think the the next kind of key period for me was, you know, there's a, a work placement program yeah. in DCU interest still still running. And in the summer of third year, they, the journalism program had that. And uh, I got my work experience with the Irish Times, mm-hmm. which was great. It was really, really great. But it's funny how things work out in that uh, the placement for the Times, I part of the reason I got that was my work with the Longford Leader already. Yeah. That, again, uh, from my experience there, they, they knew I wouldn't just be sitting around yeah, 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 kind of you know, being waiting to be trained up, mm. but I could be kind of useful already. So that was another kind of key stage for me. Yeah, you know, worked there for eight weeks, and uh, you know, I wrote articles for the science page there. Given my interest, they were very good to me. That is doing that as well. They allowed you to do that. Yeah, they allowed me to do that. Uh, but again, it was one of there was a couple of key moments where uh, you know they start you off doing smaller things, of mm. course, just to prove that you can do it. Yeah, but the stuff. That I learned at the leader, attention to detail, you know, uh, making sure everything is correct. Mm. Uh, that's the stuff that editors will look for yeah, first. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's something I tell all my, my my journalism students now. You know, no matter what you're working on, whether it's a story of a under ten gamach or a cat stuck up, up a tree, <laughs> yeah. you know, report on it with the same attention to detail as if it's the fall of the government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. that's the way you build up these kind of habits, um, and that stuck with me. So I was doing a lot of um, stuff with the Times, and a couple of key articles were. Um, it's it's weird, you know. Kind of luck does always play a part. You sure. Know, anybody who tells you luck isn't a part of fate, maybe that. <laughs> get into the topics around fate later, but yeah, yeah. no, uh, yeah. Well, we'll say luck. So yeah. there was a couple of stories where, you know, in a in a newsroom where when something happens at the start of the day, the reporters will be sent out to cover things, and if something happens during the day, a reporter might have to leave as well. Mm. So there was one day, and it was very busy in the in the newsroom, and a lot of the reporters were sent out, so there wasn't many people around, and. Uh, there was a story about an archaeological find or something in, in, I forget, in South Dublin. Okay. And they were looking around and I, I knew I, I was sitting near the news desk and they were looking around for an experienced reporter right. to send on this story. Yeah. But they were all out. Right. So they were getting ready to call their regular freelance people. Right. Um, but one of the editors said, oh, no, send Declan. Right. 
and it was one of those where people were like, uh, yeah, we're going yeah. to send the intern to do yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, they sent me out to do it. And uh, again, I, I think I did a good enough job on it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was one of those, you're trying to say, all oh, right, I have to do a good job on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was good. I, you know, interviewed the archaeologist on site. I knew a bit about the, the kind of the, the, the science stuff around it. And came back to the office again and wrote up a piece. Mm. Uh, and it, uh, you know, it was, it was published the next day and was very nice pictures around it. Cool. Um, it wasn't a massive story by any means, but yeah, for yeah. me it was kind but of... But it was like a turning point it almost was a, turning or a point. breakthrough moment. Yeah, like, it was yeah. kind of like a breakthrough moment. So from then on, you kind of said, okay, so I could, I could be trusted to a degree to do things on my own. And then I got more and more of these kind of stories. How much would confidence play in... In that then, you know, confidence in lots of careers and if you have that confidence and less self-doubt or whatever, it allows you to be freer or to be more creative. Do you think that in that moment you became more confident, self-assured and then uh, would it have an, an impact? I think I think it's only afterwards you. I thought that because, again, this was daily journalism and it was this thing broke or the news desk became aware of it maybe in sort of 11 or 12 in the day mm. and the deadline would have been around five. Yeah. So I had to, you know, travel out with a photographer, do the interviews, yeah. come back to the office and write it up. Right. So I imagine at the time I was full of doubt and full of, oh, can I do this? And this is a big deal and I better yeah, do yeah. it. But again, it was like the, what, the, the structures around didn't allow for that. Yeah. Because yeah. I had to focus on getting it mm. kind of done. Yeah. Um, and I think the sheer urgency of it, hmm. it didn't allow time to ruminate or think no, about it. No, and I think what I meant, even it was after the, that, uh, and getting it published, your confidence probably and self-belief soared maybe and for future challenges like that, you had much more De- Oh, definitely, focus, definitely. Because it's yeah. kind of weird. You look back the next day and go, wow. Like, that I, happened. That happened. Mm. And one of the great things about that I found about daily journalism is kind of every day was new. Yeah, right? yeah. No matter how good the day before there was a new paper the next day. Yeah. New space to be filled. If you had a great day and had a great story, well done, but yeah, yeah, yeah. let's next start day, again. Like new, new game. Or you yeah. had a bad day yeah. and your story didn't work out. A competitor, you know, yeah. hit you on a story. You could start again. Right. And that was kind of good. So, so um, and I was think that? The, the, yeah, the structure of your day and, the, and your daily work didn't allow for kind of doubts to often creep in. And the pace at which, that, again, I'm trying to link it to almost being in the moment, being, you know, some sort of almost mindful that you're you're just going with your instinct in a lot of ways. And those underlying fundamentals that you've just learned are just coming to the fore and it's just all happening. You don't really, not even aware of probably a lot. Yeah, of it's, it's weird how this, this happens. And I, and I think it happens in every field. Like, you know, years earlier during my first report, it would, I would have been taking a lot of time to get things and mm. taking a while to see what the story was or what's interesting, what's not interesting, how to, yeah. how to frame a story. But a lot of that knowledge becomes intuitive and becomes kind of tacit over time. Yeah. And uh, that that was happening, certainly. And, you know, I didn't go home in the evening and go, oh, I'm intuitively developing my sense of news now. I can yeah, see yeah, yeah, yeah. But in my day-to-day work, things would happen faster and I would see things quicker. Mm. And the I think the, the sense or your, your intuition of your work yeah. certainly kind of developed very, very cool. quickly. It's a nice, it's a good, it's a good one to reflect upon. I guess yeah, it's yeah. one that sticks out still. So from that breakthrough, what, where, where did, where did things move from there? Uh, well, then I went, uh, went back to finish uh, my my degree, did the last year there, and and I knew I wanted to specialize in some aspect of science or environmental reporting. Mm. And the, the 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 question always is, do I do a masters now straight away, or do I go and work for a while and then yeah. come back and do a masters? 
So um, I I decided to do a master's straight away. It was a master's offered here in DCU, still is offered here in DCU, uh, science communication. And at the time it was held jointly between Queens and Belfast and, and DCU. And it was basically to bring scientists and people from the social sciences or the humanities together okay. to, to study how science is communicated and how to communicate science. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of linked to my earlier course in the history and philosophy of science that I really, really liked. So it was yeah. kind of more of that stuff. More of that, cool. So I figured this would give me a bit of an edge or a bit of a qualification yeah. in science communication. So uh studied that for a year. And again, that was... One-year master's. Was it was a one-year master's. Full-time job, yeah. 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 And that was very influential because, um you know, one of the one of the things a master's gives you is you're more mature when you do it, right? Mm-hmm. So you're not as interested in the college like social the, scene and the lifestyle, right? Yeah, you're a little yeah, bit yeah. more serious as a student. Uh, but also it's, um, it, gi- it gives you a period of time to actually read around your topic and read deeply into your topic mm-hmm. in a way that is very difficult to manage when you're working. You know, you think, oh, I'll read that book, I'll read that book, I'll read that book. But when yeah. you're working, it's very hard to do yeah. So give me, give me the time and space to do that. And uh, so that's one of the major benefits of of doing a master's is taking that time to read the things and learn the principles and the core concepts mm. that will underpin your future work. Right. Um, and that, you know, you'll always be catching up if you might not, don't, don't have that kind of stage. Yeah. So I did that. And then um, I, at the back of my mind, I always wanted to be an academic and a researcher. Right. But having studied journalism was my first love and I was really into it. I wanted to work as a journalist for a On while. the front lines. On the front lines. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, sort of like that. And, uh, so I, I got back in touch with the Irish Times and they said, yeah, we can, we offer you some freelance work, you know, cool. starting out as a journalist, no, like nobody comes along and gives you a full time job. Right. You know, you start off as a freelance, you're working for yourself. There's two ways to do it. You can write articles and sell them to different outlets mm. um, or you can do shifts and they're like, you turn up to do a news reporting shift. You know, you turn up at 10 a.m. and you work until 6 p.m. Mm. and whatever comes along, you report on. Right. So I was doing a bit of both. Um, okay. So I was working for the Times. That freedom, though, is that something you enjoyed at the time? Is having that freedom as well? Because I think a lot of times talking to people goes back to core values. We talk about those maybe as we go, but like freedom is important to yeah. you that you ca- you had that options. Was that something that was important here? Did, uh, did it matter? You know, it's at, looking back on it, it's it was great that I had the variety and stuff like that. But at the time, you know, there were pra- practical constraints as well. You know, you have to earn money to live, and you have to. Um, most importantly, you have to sort of build up your reputation mm. uh, as a journalist. Mm. And uh, the only way to do that is to do journalism and yeah. get bylines and get stuff out there so mm. uh, people will know who you were. Um, so that was the, my main priority. You know, I was, as long as I had enough money to live um, and I was getting the experience, that's that's what I saw as I, I cool. wanted to do uh, during that period of time. But mm. it was weird as well. Again, the way luck kind of plays a part. Do you remember... Again, it's the early 2000s. You remember there was foot and mouth disease mm-hmm. in Ireland. It was a huge, yeah, yeah, yeah. huge economic and agricultural sort of crisis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Ireland so dependent on agriculture, foot and mouth disease could be uh, catastrophic. So I was working in the newsroom at the time and I had an interest in science stuff. Um, you know, I was really junior, was a freelancer. But it was such a big story that the newspaper devoted several people to work on it. So yeah. the, the senior agriculture reporter... Uh, Sean McConnell, who's passed away, he's a brilliant journalist, and a couple of others were working on the big stuff, and yeah. I was kind of doing a lot of the little stuff. Yeah. But foot and mouth was one of these things that was just on the news agenda and was a pressing issue for Ireland for ages. Right. So I remember working on foot and mouth for almost every day for about two months. Right. You know, so I knew everything about this kind of mm. uh, 
this agricultural artist kind of, uh, you know, bovine virus. And, uh, you know, I wrote an awful lot of stuff mm. from day to day. And that was a really major experience, cool. right? Because it was one topic over a long period of time that changed a lot. And I was kind of supporting. Okay. I was by no means the main reporter, but I was uh, supporting a lot of other different roles. Right. And that was a key moment, key period, because it showed I could keep that relentless pace up yeah. and pr- produce every day sort and of thing and deliver yeah, 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 yeah. deliver. i mean it's it's journalism can be a very hard profession in that you know if you don't deliver yeah that's if you go out of the limelight or so is your, your yesterday's news a little bit yeah or, as a reporter if you like you, you might have the aptitude you might have a bit of talent but if you're not delivering and not producing yeah then it uh then it can be difficult to, right, to right, have right. a successful okay. career so that was a really kind of key moment. Um, so that was a continuous period of two or three months where you're getting something out there every day. And and what did you even learn about yourself from from that? A uh, couple of things. Uh, you know, one is, uh, you know, times when you really, really wanted a break and you couldn't have it. Mm. Uh, but it was worth it to kind of keep yeah. kind of plowing on with it. And just the, the kind of, I suppose, the early value of consistency. Mm. Kind of delivering on a consistent kind of basis mm. on one topic, um, I found good, you know, and and the fact that I could keep doing keep it, keep doing it, yeah, yeah. And again, it's one of those things you look back and go, "Wow, that was really important." You know, when you're in it at the time, yeah. you don't know, but looking back, it seemed cool. A lot of things came together, you know, the reporting, attention to detail, being reliable and consistent, mm. working as part of this team on this one topic over a long period of time was another kind of key key mm. time for me. Cool. So then I got a lot more work with the Times after that. Right. And it was good. It was a successful uh, few years working for them. Yeah, right. I really enjoyed it. So you had a few years doing that. What was, you know, what was, there was probably something burning inside then. Knowing that you have three degrees, I'm sure there was probably something to go back to there. Well, well I had two, two degrees at that time. But it's, yeah. um, what happened actually was, again, just weird the way serendipity or circumstances changed. The Irish Times was going through a difficult financial period. Yeah, and um, people were losing their jobs, or they were getting there was lots of payoffs offered uh, to people, and I was a freelancer, so right. um, you know the chances of long term stable employment there were not great. Yeah, um, so they were offering a package, um, that, a severance package, even though I as a freelancer, as a freelancer still be option. Yeah, okay. yeah, this was the golden age of newspapers <laughs> when, news, like, <laughs> when newspapers okay. had money, um, so I was like, okay, this this is kind of interesting, and uh, the uh, the Irish Daily Mirror. Mm. Uh, the news desk called me and said, you know, there, we know there's difficulties at the Times. Okay. Um, would you come in and have a chat with us? Well, so uh, I went and had a chat with them and uh, I really, really liked the editors there. Okay. And uh, they they said, look, you know, we're offering you five shifts a week here, Monday to Friday. Right. Uh, or, five, you know, you might work the occasional Sunday and stuff like that. And uh, it just kind of fell into place. Right. And for me, it was like, this is... Really good. Um, an interesting opportunity. I talked to a few people. Yeah. You know, a few former lecturers here and other journalists. And they said, you know, young journalist early in your career. And it's the same for everybody. Do move around. Do yeah, experience yeah. different parts of your industry. Do see things from a different perspective. Um, the Irish Times is a wonderful newspaper. It's a great newspaper. The risk is that you become so settled there. Right. And you spend much of your career just in that one place. Great place to work. Yeah. But the opportunity to, to, to work in different environments okay. was kind of enticing to me and write different types of news was uh, interesting to me. And that whole tabloid versus broadsheet, was there anything you were 
and again, this is me from the outside that yeah. don't, doesn't know how that was there any kind of not ethical challenges or, or was there anything that kind of put you off from the thought of working for a tabloid? You though? know, newspapers have a lot more in common than they do about than they do differences. Right. The main difference I found was um, the sort of presentation of news. You'd often be writing about many of the same things, but the emphasis on where you write about it would be different. Right. Um, and the writing style and stuff like that was very was was a bit of a jolt to the system because you're writing a different way. You have to yeah. be shorter, more dramatic, punchier, mm. and much more high impact. And that was new for me. Yeah. The second thing that was different is whereas, like, I say a broadsheet or like the Irish Times will focus on institutions, tabloids focus on individuals and personalities. Right. So they frame events around particular individuals, right? You know, so it's not about the government. Say mm. it's about Enda Kenny. You know, the way of thinking about it. And that shift was difficult for me. Mm. Um, but then it's, in the long run, it's been really good for me because it kind of helped me write better, right. helped me write more kind of punchy or dramatic okay. kind of styles of writing. Um, and part of it reminded me of the Longford Leader in that, you know, when I was working with the Irish Times, you're talking to official them a lot, right. right? Official sources and stuff like that. But whereas with the Longford Leader and the Mirror, you're kind of talking to more regular uh, people, right? It's more about the personalities and the people. So that's really good. And I found that useful in terms of interviewing and getting along with people and, you know, trying to forge a connection with people quickly so, you know, they'll talk to you and and give you information. So in terms of kind of rounded skill building, it was very, very good. Very beneficial. How did you, did you develop the different styles? So the puncher style you mentioned a couple of times, is that something you just worked on yourself? Is there people you bounced off influence from advice yeah yeah well um again it was daily news so it would have to be done that day but i found my reporting was always solid but my writing at the start was still very orientated towards the broadsheet so so the editors would sit down at me and work through uh the story kind of changing a little bit and it was kind of hard because you know I had get a, a few exper- puns extra yeah, exactly but <laughs> yeah. i you know i had a bit of experience at the time so it was going back to you know, I felt like a novice journalist again. Yeah, so yeah, that was kind of hard right. and a bit frustrating. It's like, oh, I should be able to do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you kind of settle into it. And, and I was never brilliant at it, but I got okay. to a good enough standard right, right, right. Uh, at the end. And it's interesting as well, because the um, what what I took from it as well was a lot of the things you see in media now, um, more generally, uh, I learned then working for The Mirror in that, one of the things that tabloids do very well is they package news very well, right? They're great on sports coverage. They're great on uh, entertainment coverage. Uh, they're good on big events, you know, crime events, mm. things like that. Um, and they package them all together very well. But one of the consequences of the online era is that stuff has, you know, they're not as packaged. Things okay. get spread off, right? So right. Uh, you don't go one place for everything now. You right. go to one place for your sport. You go somewhere else for your showbiz. Yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. And and many sites now have to find a way to incorporate these different elements. Right. And that's something I learned there. So it kind of gave me a very, uh, a deeper understanding of the media and journalism and how it kind of works. Mm, the whole um, machine of it. The whole maybe. machine of it, yeah. yeah and the yeah. way you present ideas and information. And I wouldn't have got that if I didn't move around a little bit okay. as well. Cool. So there uh, was... You know, it's like, you know, and the variety of stories was, was, was different. You know, you, you might be writing a sports story. And then I was thinking I was writing an obituary of Charlie Hahi, and then I was interviewing like uh, Holocaust survivors. Right. And then I was going to talk to, uh, you know, uh, someone who's been a victim of a crime or something like this. And this is a huge yeah, yeah. spread of stuff yeah. that I wouldn't have been doing. Mm. Uh, 
if I was working somewhere else. Yeah. So again, it's only now looking back that I, I thought it was great. But what I, it's weird. I said I would do do it in my head. I said I would work for the mirror for six months, maybe a year mm. just to sample something different. Mm. But it was a place where I really saw the value of a really good team working yeah, yeah, together. Yeah. Right. Okay. In that it was a small newsroom, but everybody was really focused on on execution, on okay. producing a really good product. Right. And there wasn't, you know, office politics. There wasn't any, you know, that kind of stuff. It, right. was, it was very much we're all do, kind of doing this. And the reporters were very good. We kind of pushed each other on a little bit. And the paper was consistently excellent. Yeah. yeah. And it, that, in working in a team where everybody's sort of moving towards the same thing and pushing for the same thing, all eyes on the same kind of goal, mm. that was a really rewarding environment okay. uh, to be in. And I really loved it. I made really, really good friends there. Cool. Um, I used to go and report in the doll a lot right. on politics. And I met my wife, Louisa, in cool. the doll. Yeah. So that's the best thing that happened that's to me a, at that time, of a course. Good, a good outcome there. Indeed. Uh, but moving around the industry early in my career has been really beneficial as I've moved on, I found. Yeah. And that's probably a universal um, piece of advice, you know, if people coming into any career is to, to try lots of different things and get to lot, lots of varieties out of it. Was there any one article report in that time in the in the, the mirror um, that stood out that uh, was a big one for you? Or I remember reading a lot of your stuff that you were on front page a lot of the time as well. Yeah, I yeah. I know it, it was the variety of stuff you got to do and the high profile stuff you got to do was great. I mean, there's a lot of there's no single one that stood out, but I think it's the collective thing of, of, of producing a lot of work over a short period of time in lots of different genres about lots of different things mm. that I think for, uh, you know, early career journalists was very, very good for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I still had this kind of yearning to go back and do research and be an academic for a while. Mm. And that got stronger over time. And it was coming to the stage of my career where I was like, right, I'm either all in in journalism now mm. or I make the change now um, and go and do research because you have to invest a lot of time to do to do your PhD and move on. Mm. So the timing was kind of right. Um, uh, you know, Louisa, we were together for a while. She supported me in this. Mm -hmm. So left the mirror and moved back to do my PhD back here in DCU. Back where it all began. Back so. where it all began. Yeah, indeed. I had uh, stayed in touch with uh, Helena Sheehan who taught me that course in history philosophy of science who i'd known since the first year yeah and uh she was my phd supervisor and the way okay. it works is it's it's sort of uh i produce work on my own under her sort of guidance right but it's largely individually driven in that i do my own research and then she would advise me about you know on my my drafts about what's going well what i need to work on do you and come up with the the topic, the the focus. Yeah, you do. I mean, there's two ways. Sometimes someone will advertise. Right. And, but in this case, I came up with the topic myself. Okay. Uh, one of the things that, you know, working in the mirror, I was interested in was the notion of celebrity and fame. And especially the way ideas are presented through personalities. Right. Right. So it's not ideas just floating around on their own. But, you know, you need a face for ideas. Needs so to, give so, an example, maybe just for, for me. <laughs> yeah, no, sure. So say... Uh, you know, you're talking about, uh, you know, if I say to you, right, uh, Michael Jordan, what comes to mind? Nike, three pointers. Yeah. 
I think he a quote that I, I've read lately is that he's the one that's missed the most shots in the NBA, even though he's the most successful. Um, those those sort of things, like yeah, know. but it's yeah. So it's kind of like, but yet if if uh, you know one of the best basketballers ever, right? So yeah, if you yeah. think of excellence, if you think of sporting excellence, you think of sporting near perfection. Sure, he's embodies a lot of those yeah. kind of ideas, right? So that's one way of thinking about it. And another element you mentioned there, kind of Nike and the way that works. If you can make money from that or advertise that mm-hmm. element, that's a, brand. a big part of it. The brand is a big part of it as well. So I was interested in in these kind of things, you know, abstract ideas uh, embodied in people. Yeah. And I said, would that be interesting to look at in terms of science? Because that's what I was interested mm-hmm. in. So my, my idea was to look at celebrity and science and why do some scientists uh, become famous figures? Yeah. Right? Not just famous within their fields for their work, but known to broader culture. Yeah. Right? Why is... Out of all the physicists out there, why is Stephen Hawking the best known? Yeah. Why is Richard Dawkins influential in terms of his work? Mm. Um, and that's what I wanted to look at. Okay. Um, and so I came up with that idea, but I, as I start to work and decide where to go with it, you know, I um, get in touch with Helena, my supervisor, and we talk about it and develop yeah. it uh, for, for, for that way. Um, so that's the outline of the, how, right. how it works. Okay. Um, Normally it takes three, four years to do it if you're working on it fairly full-time consistently. Um, I was doing it part-time, right. uh, so it took me about six years. Okay. But I was doing a little bit of journalism. I was doing other research projects, other bits and pieces. Right. Um, and then, uh, so it, it stretched out a little bit. Okay. You know, probably too long. We'll come back on it now. <laughs> right. Um, and maybe for somebody that likes to, that you develop that agility to deliver stuff on a regular basis it probably would have been better for you to continue I, with that pace i think so to... and this is where things i think change a little bit for me because at the start i used to get incredibly frustrated because basically if you're doing a phd you you can't write anything that's really good for you know months and months and months because you have to read a ton mm. and you're sort of adding to what's already there so you can't just jump in and say you know here i am here's yeah. my stuff you got to do a ton of reading before that. But I used to get really frustrated that, you know, I hadn't done a yeah, yeah, thousand yeah. words. I hadn't done this. So the good habits that I had learned, I needed to sort of manage right. around them. Yeah. To kind of get rid of that frustration. So I'm better at it now. But, you know, it took a long time at the start to mm. move into this different way of working. Okay. And kind of retrain myself a little bit to be a little bit more patient and not be as expecting to get stuff done really, really quickly. Okay. So that was a big change and a big kind of challenge. Um but I've gotten a lot better at it, I think, over time. So what's the final output when when you go through that six-year fi- period? The final output is a PhD, which is dissertation, which is like a big sort of book. Mm-hmm. And there's an examination where uh, experts in the field come and, you know, give you a sort of two-hour exam, okay. talking to you and, you know... On talk- a, pan- a panel-type interview? Yeah, type a panel-type interview, yeah. Okay. And you spend, it's about two hours, I think it was, and they talk to you about, question you on various aspects of your PhD and okay. you know why did you do this da, 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 da. it's called a defense so you right. defend your PhD yeah, yeah, yeah. so they kind of come at you a little bit and then you have to speak up about why right. you did it and it's to show that you're you've sort of mastered your topic and you can speak as a mm. sort of professional academic about your work it's okay. quite it was a it was a good experience for me but it was a very intense experience right because that's it it's kind of all building up Whoa. to that um but uh it was one of those things where you kind of like, well, all I can do is do a really good job of my dissertation. Yeah. You know, I can't think about how someone might react to it. Sure. I can't think about what they'll say or anything like that. So all I can do is focus on producing the best I could. Would you put yourself in their shoes, though, to think of what 
angles they could come at you at it's like use it in NLP type perceptual positioning type where you're they're looking at it from their perspective and being prepared for that to defend it like yeah I, 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 I did a lot of that yeah thinking about the kind of questions that would be asked um, but there was still even with that there were some of course yeah difficult kind of questions that you know looking back you're kind of oh maybe I did, could have answered that a little bit better but you're not I mean it's it, they're the experts in the area as well yeah, yeah so yeah. you have to you know you can't defend it when it's mm. uh, an, uh, a position that really you should have thought so about true. a little bit more so is that a, is that a, an all or nothing thing then then no no know, it's how, it's how they... it's well you know ideally if you're well supervised which i was it wouldn't get to the stage of examination if, okay. if it didn't have a likelihood of yeah, yeah, yeah. Of working out for you so uh what what usually happens what happens with me is in rare cases it flies through you don't need to do any corrections right um but what usually happens is what happened to me is that you have minor corrections. Right. So the the, the examiners, the experts would have a few points that you need to work into your mm. finished document and then it's approved and then that's you finished. And it's out there in the wild for... Well, it's on a university shelf, yes. But it, it can be cited. And, yeah, it can be know, cited and read and used. Yeah, yeah, it's a public document and it's, it's out there, yeah. It's in the cool. record. And is that one of your most proud... Achievements to date? I think so, yeah, I yeah. think so. Um, uh, it's certainly the biggest piece of work I've done. Bigger than the book? Well, e yes, bigger than the book because there's more reading in it and more de more development of knowledge over a long period of time and okay. development of expertise over a long period of time. Mm. In the, the book grew out of the dissertation. I always saw the dissertation as a sort of first draft of the book. Yeah. But, when, you know, any, your book... A lot of the background reading, a lot of the methodologies, a lot of the kind of stuff that you have to show that you know in order to get a PhD mm. is of little interest to, you know, more broader readers. So you have to kind of cut all that stuff out. Yeah, so yeah. to get to, to be able to write a book, you have to, you know, wade through a lot of stuff. Right. Um, so I think, yeah, it was, it's, a, it's a high point, most cool. definitely, yeah. And what did you learn doing that, going through that process Additional to what you had, you know, in your earlier career, it's kind of, it's almost, as you said earlier on, it's, it's to overcome some of those frustrations. But was there other key takeaways that you did? A few, yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of, um, the, the key thing I took from it, a couple of key things. One is, um, the value of sort of work, a good, having a good rhythm of work. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, the, the rhythm of work in daily newspapers is kind of chaotic, right? Mm -hmm. It's just frenzied from day to day. Um, but the rhythm of work for a longer, piece of work like this is crucial right you can't do nothing for six months and then sit down in month seven and lash it all out yeah you really have to do it over time steady. do it steady yeah so so that's when i kind of calmed down a little bit after journalism that's the kind of lesson I, I i took from it okay and i was easier with the fact that right okay today i didn't write a load of words didn't make significant process but mm. i read these couple of things yeah, yeah, yeah and i kind of got used to the fact that the benefits of that will only show up in two or three months down the line, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, you connect this to this, or yeah. I'm reading that, and so that kind of slower rhythmic work mm. is is a major thing I learned. Right. And the second thing I learned, and I think this is it'd be, you know, interesting to hear your thoughts on this, Rob. Is like, uh, you know, the the value of good supervision and mentoring mm -hmm. in this, in that, uh, Helena, she and my supervisor, you know, she didn't sit down and tell me what to do. You mm. know, she didn't say step one, you do this; step two, you do this. But, you know, her own work is, is outstanding and her own research is outstanding. Okay. So I learned so much from 
reading her work yeah, yeah, and her talking about her work and how she did things. And so it's kind of what you what I developed uh, from working with her is a sort of, I don't know how to describe the sense of kind of taste mm. about what good academic work looks like. It sounded like she was more of a coach than a mentor in a way. I, 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 yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. Co- like, as you said, mentors, people, mentors give advice, give experience and be a bit more directive in some ways. Yes. Whereas coaching is, it's like, this is what I did. What do you think about it? And you have your own time to reflect and think through it and take certain things from it. But you actually ultimately come up with those ideas and answers yourself. You know? It is. The, I think the slight difference in the, in the supervisor role, and it's quite particular to acta- academia, you know, supervisor is not like, you know, in a factory where like on an assembly line or something. Yeah. But it's, it's kind of, you know, this is what good research is. This is how I did it. And then I would send her stuff. Right. But if it wasn't, she then, still has a formal yeah, yeah, education yeah. role. So if it right. isn't, you know, up to scratch, it, it's her back. job to say like, sure. academically, this is, you know, right. not... This is this is not at the level that it should yeah, be. Yeah, yeah. So, so that little bit of it there's is, a few different hats almost she wears there. Yeah, so you know, indeed, yeah, indeed, yeah. and uh, so, but kind of being socialized, I guess, into what good research is and how to think like mm. a researcher. That yeah. is another kind of big benefit, I guess. And I, I guess you need it in most careers. Mm. But I don't know. No, no, like, and I think the point you meant there that I've kind of figured out a little bit more over the last number of months or a couple of years is that it's okay to be reading five or six books in parallel and not necessarily come up with something inspirational the next day. It's over a period of time that kind of goes through your subconscious and over a period of time, things start to just join up and it's like served up and then it makes a little bit more sense further down the road. And that's through the coaching, through going through a lot of intuitive type coaching and getting in touch with your subconscious and your your right brain it it, it actually helps form it and, and again not to be trying to force that it'll just come yeah it it, it is again it's uh yeah there's that's very interesting the way you describe it there because you know there's a lot of frankly nonsense written about creativity and things like this mm. but you know you need discipline and boundaries with creativity as well and creativity is often linking two things that haven't been linked before mm-hmm. or bringing two things together that haven't been synthesized before and you can only do that if you've engaged say with two books with two different ideas and yeah. the connections between them but you have to be disciplined enough to read the books be be aware of your reading and to you know be put yourself in a position where your mind can make those kind of connections i'm actually going to give you a book recommendation there now so it's called the inner edge and i it's a it's about intuition and there's a there's a decision quantum decision making process in it but it it allows your right and left brain to talk to each other but first of all you go to the left brain it serves up some stuff through kind of imagery and those images might mean nothing to you right now but a couple of days later it'll actually start meaning something and then you use your left brain to put a structure an action plan around it use it for coaching use it for a lot of different things but me giving you a book uh, reference is kind oh, of no uh, no i look forward to reading it yeah <laughs> I, I, it's uh it reminds me of another book that i i don't know have you ever read the accidental creative i've heard of it i haven't todd read it. henry yeah it's really really good um i found it I only read it about three years ago, but I found it really, really useful uh, in that, you know, he coaches people who work in the creative industries. And I mean, there's a lot of kind of hype and, you know, kind of G up talk in it. Yeah. yeah. But the underlying principles are really, really good. And Mm -hmm. I found for an academic, they're really, really good as well, because Mm -hmm. he sort of made a system around things that I was doing already, but not maybe doing uh, as well as I should. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's um, 
you know, a lot of the stuff is very similar to. I know you're a fan of Cal Newport and Deep Work. And yeah, that kind yeah. Of stuff. So a lot of a lot of it is similar to that. It's about you know being really disciplined about carving out time mm. for work and uh, sticking to that. Mm. And um, that it's only when you put into practice these r- routines mm. uh, can you kind of do this kind of rhythm of work that allows you to actually do really good work mm. that isn't superficial and isn't kind of bitty yeah and um, so his i found that book really really good again the yeah. accidental creative that's mm. kind of corny subtitle which is how to be brilliant at a moment's notice right uh but i i really would recommend if you're working in areas kind of yeah. like this it's, it's, it's a good one certainly i think i'll definitely need a second page for all the book references on this one anyway but that's good uh books are so many it's it's like uh, talking to a guy last night that I, I recorded as well and we were just talking about a few different books and he said he looked over the shelf and he has 14 that he has to plan to read and we were talking about even you know that get abstract website where they can summarize books uh, we we're kind of debating about that but anyway off topic um phd done yeah. uh, i know we're kind of linearly going through your your life story but i think there's lots of good stuff coming sure, out of sure, it sure. after the phd was that then the decision to go to the states yeah yeah um i mean it's uh the thing about being an academic is uh you kind of have to go where the jobs are right um and when jobs are advertised for academic work it's usually in a specific area yeah um so i don't know if you're a historian in the medieval history of europe you have jones yeah it, well it's a little bit a little bit Closer to our current time than, than that, but you know, there's only a few of those jobs ever advertised, so you have to go to where the job is. Mm. Um, and a job came up um, in Washington, D.C., uh, and it was to teach science journalism and health journalism. Okay. Um, and a couple of things. One is I've always been interested in the U.S., you know, loved U.S. journalism, mm. U.S. Uh, uh, fiction, U.S. movies. Um, so I always wanted to live there yeah. for a little while, cool. at, at the very least. And, uh, so that came up, and secondly, um, a researcher that I whose work I liked an awful lot, Matthew Nisbet, was working in that okay. institution. Wow! Um, so it was one of those things where it's kind of wow, this would be really, really mm. perfect job if it came up. Yeah. Um, and again, it's 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 one of those things where you know the outcome I couldn't control or think about the outcome as well. Yeah. So I just kind of put together the best application I could for it. Right. And um, so I spent an enormous amount of time mm. getting that as as good as I could get it and what was involved in that application is it like just articles you have to write some stuff well the first you you write a yeah like you send off your cv but you have a long cover letter and mm. for academic jobs it's a long cover letter where you talk about your research so far what you plan to do in the future what you have taught da, 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 da. so it's a long so that's the first kind of stage so i sent that off um and then there was a then there was a phone interview and then i got through that stage and then you're invited to the university campus for mm-hmm. I think it was like two or three days of interviews. Well, so it's um, it was very intense. It was actually mm. one of the most intense experiences. Yeah, uh, I've had, and it's you know you go there and um, you meet people on the interview panel, and you do a mock teaching presentation where the people on the the panel pretend to be students. Okay, you know, it's a, yeah. but you have to teach a class. Yeah, yeah, um, to show that you can teach very well, and then you you meet people in various positions. And then you give a research presentation where you talk about your research so far and the research you're going to do in the future. Yeah. And there's lots of kind of questions there. So it uh, it was a very intense, rigorous kind of process. Right. Um, and again, it's one of those ones where you look back and go, wow, that was like, that mm. was a really important experience. But do you think everything you'd been doing up to then prepared you well for that? It, it did. Yeah, it did in, yeah. in ways. Um, 
but you know and if like if you want to be a professional academic you have to be able to you know convince mm-hmm. an interview panel that you can influencing do, can, skills yeah can do the can do the job there um so i had the skills but it uh, there was a lot of preparation for it because it is one of these potentially lifetime or once in a lifetime opportunities yeah so i was just determined look I, i'll give it my best yeah if it doesn't work out you've learned something but from it, it. but but at least at least if it doesn't work out it won't be because you didn't I, give everything i didn't yeah. give my best yeah. shot yeah. yeah exactly and yeah so moved then my louise and i we moved to the u.s um moved to washington dc the university was called american university easy one to remember um but washington is a beautiful city mm. it's a great place uh to live and it's an easy place to live um and you know i got so much from working at, at a u.s university mm. i mean the I can't speak for all US universities, but this one in ways was different to some in Ireland. It was, um, you know, it was it was a private university, so the students pay enormous fees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and so there's a a requirement for teaching to be really good, high standard, very yeah. very high standard. Yeah, and you know, I was told right at the start, look, you you have to be an excellent teacher. Right, you have you know basically you know a year year and a half, we want you to be an excellent teacher. Right, and if it's not working out teaching wise, okay, um, so. That really forced me to mm. really develop as a teacher. And how? How would? What was the approach for that? Was it something against self development, or did you have influences or mentors to to help with that? There was a bit of both. I mean, I had done some teaching here in Dublin before I went there, um, but you know, the idea of kind of lecturing to a class. Mm. I mean, that's not the way mm. it's kind of done now, right? You might have to lecture if it's a big, huge class, two or right. three hundred people, but these were smaller classes, 25 people. So you can't just stand up at the front of the PowerPoint and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and lecture. You have to engage with the students and you have to, you know, kind of, it's much more um, them leading things, but you putting things into a framework, you giving very good feedback, you mm. giving uh, consistent feedback so they can see improvement mm. over time. And... I love that because students were quite demanding. They were very motivated. They were quite yeah. serious. They were very career minded mm. um, in all the right kind of ways. Yeah. And, and that forces you to kind of up your game. Yeah. And, you know, if, if, if you weren't doing well as a teacher, you would know it very, very quickly yeah, yeah, yeah. from the students and from your kind of colleagues there as well. Mm. So, again, a pressurized environment where I had to do it. Yeah. Um, but it it. it you just had to jump in and and, and yeah, try and yeah. do it as best I could. Yeah. But I really enjoyed that experience, and I think it made my teaching a lot kind of better. Yeah, I imagine. So what were the, like, so you're almost creating like a thinking environment for the the students for yes. them to actually come up with the ideas to come, you know, to develop their own thought processes around it. Oh, as much as possible, one way. Yeah, as much as possible. Yeah, definitely, definitely, because it's you know it's this uh, you know I'm working on a piece at the moment about you know say Malcolm Gladwell, mm-hmm. the writer Malcolm Gladwell, and he's a great quote where he says. It's not just about students, but everybody goes, people are experience rich, but theory poor. Yeah. So people have experienced a lot of stuff, know a lot of stuff. But what a lot of people don't have is a framework in which to put their experience to make sense of it. Yeah. And they they can maybe learn from it. Mm. So a lot of teaching is uh, these kind of frameworks. Yeah. Right. So it's, uh, you know, if you're teaching science journalism, it's it's our environmental journalism. It's not just the nuts and bolts and how to write stories. It's, you know, what's the place of the environment in culture? How do things uh, become environmental problems? How do they become solutions? How does the media cover them? Why does the media cover them in this certain kind of ways? What do you think you need to know to report well on the environment? Mm. And sort of building up uh, from those kind of questions that yeah. the students might have themselves rather than me just standing at the front and saying, mm. you know, 
here's here's the way it is kind of yeah. listen up you know edu- education people you know there's this kind of slogan it's uh you know it's not you're not the sage on the stage you're the guide to decide right and that's a, a kind of a, a development in educational kind of theory as well mm-hmm. and, and i think a good one what i'm what's just coming up is you know you said you were always passionate about or interested in going to the states was there anything surprising positively negatively that you kind of took away from from the the journey of the few years over there. Yeah, I was there for five years during um, during Obama's reign. Was, I guess. Yeah, it was. It was. It was Obama's second term. Second the end term. of his first and started second term. And uh, yeah, so it it, it it it's funny. Um, I mean, I like most Irish people consume a ton of U.S. culture. Mm. So you've seen a ton of movies, TV, books. So you kind of get this sense that you understand America or mm. American culture, and then when you get there, you don't. Right, right. It is a, mm. a different place. Mm. Um, you know, America is a vast, complex kind yeah. of place, and it, it you know, it's, it's complex, it's very, very big. It's very, very difficult to understand. So it was great to start seeing it from the inside. And in terms of being an academic, it was really, really good right. for me. Um, because uh, well, I found academic American academics can be very good. Right, you know, they publish a lot. Mm. Um, they're usually really, really good teachers. And they work very, very hard. Yeah. And so you have to be able to do a lot of things well to be a, a good academic, right? Yeah. You have to teach well, you have to do uh, good research, and you have to be a good sort of administrator and manager, right? Mm-hmm. So they're very, very different kind of skills. Yeah. And one of the things I took from there, it was, it was seeing that, you know, seeing so many people able to do those different things mm-hmm. all at once and all together, which yeah. really kind of uh, opened my eyes to, right, you know, if I want to do this seriously for a living, this is mm-hmm. the kind of standard Right, I have to to live up to. So that was really really good, mm. and I got lots of really good mentorship there. Okay, and um, you know, advice on writing, advice on teaching. You know, a colleague sat in on one of my classes and would give me feedback. Right, uh, and you know, in in that very, I find it great, very direct American way. You did this very well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. these elements need to to work on. Yeah, to, to be worked on. Mm. Um, so the environment is very constructive and supportive, but it was you must deliver. Yeah, and um. I found that really good mm. in terms of sort of career acceleration. Yeah. In that, you know, the system in America is different to the system here. Uh, there is, you're on a tenure track, it's called, and tenure is a full-time position. Right. So you have six years on tenure track, and that's basically to show that you uh, are good enough to be awarded tenure. Yeah. So to do that, you have to teach very, very well. You have to produce uh, research, good research, and hopefully a lot of research mm. and you have to uh, do sort of service and management and you have to do all of those mm. areas to a high standard mm. all within six years yeah um, so that's it was it's a pressure cooker environment sure yeah it sounds good um, but and I found the intensity of it challenging at times mm. because there is this kind of tick-tock tick-tock but again it kind of it drove me on to produce a lot more yeah. in a shorter period than I would have done here. perhaps elsewhere yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's just it's just their system I guess yeah. and again it's like newspapers moving around is really really good Yeah. and I found this really really good to experience that mm. culture so at least for me I found that I I accelerated things mm. there um, in a way that uh, I found really instructive yeah. and for me um, uh, and learned a lot of very very good habits about mm. kind of managing my time and arranging my day uh, to focus on the things that are most important Mm. You know, so, um, you know, doing research, writing research is the most important 
uh, part of, of, of it's not the uh, out of term when you're not teaching classes yeah, 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 it's yeah. the most important thing to right. do and you should be focusing on it as well but to find a time to do it mm. um, or not find the time is the wrong actually the really wrong way to think about it to make the time to yeah do it. yeah and that's the kind of skill i really learned there and it's you know organizing my whole day around time to research and write mm. so for me i need uh blocks of time you know ideally three four hours yeah of uninterrupted time mm. internet off phone off yeah, yeah, yeah nothing else but writing in those times mm. and if i can do that five times a week yeah. over a period of weeks yeah, yeah, yeah i'll get a lot done yeah if that gets interrupted i don't get a lot done yeah, yeah, yeah. And it doesn't work out so it, it taught me to structure my days mm. around that mm. and so no matter what else was going on in my life no matter how busy I was, if I get those three hours in every day, yeah, the rest of the day goes really well and I get my most important work done. That's interesting because it goes that deep work book that we mentioned, you know, there's the four or five different approaches to getting the deep work done. And you said the three to four hours when I'm doing assignments at the moment, I find I have to have a four hour block because it takes me like about 45 minutes to ramp up and then you're you're on a plateau of doing something for two or two and a bit hours and then you feel like you get something done whereas trying to do 40 minutes a day or, or an hour a day for me it just is very difficult because you're just you're just only starting to scratch the surface and then you're pulling yourself out of it like no so it's, it's, it's funny i mean it, this seems to be a, a consistent thing and i also find it's weird it's like i was away last week at a conference so i i wasn't writing as much and mm. so i'm back today yeah but i know it'll take me a couple of days to ramp up to get back to where i was yeah yeah, yeah. and so i Again, I try to minimize things and arrange things where I'm, get, you know, organizing. Yeah. Well, family first, of course, but yeah, yeah, yeah. getting the rest of my time around these mm. key hours where I make the most kind of progress. Do you do you stick to? I'm just kind of going going off around prioritization and and to do lists and things like that. I talked to a few people and different views on it, but it's to try and keep that to do list to as minimal amount of things on the day like as possible. I use a tool called Trello. I don't know if you heard of Trello, but it's like to do lists days i have about 20 things on it but i've got better at saying like i'm just not going to do them i just moved into the next day is that something similar it, it is it is i mean during during the term time when i when you're kind of teaching and you're teaching classes and you have a lot of students the students have to come first yeah really so um you'd be responsive to them and attentive to them as yeah. as, as much as possible but when you know say now we're at the end of the semester you have time yeah and uh, then you really have to manage your own kind of time as well and mm. you notice that book uh, getting things done Dave Allen, do you know that book? It's kind of a classic of time management. Mm. It's really, really good. And right. I've used that kind of system okay. for years. And I also, one of the uh, one of the techniques in the accidental creative that I mentioned there was, you know, having, you know, your your, your big three, as he calls them, your three main things that mm. are the highest priority, most important things to work on. And mm. um, well, not highest priority is being most urgent, but most yeah, yeah, high yeah. priority things. So here above my desk, I have, uh, I'm working on a book with a colleague, with Matt uh, Nisbet, the two of us are writing a book on on journalists as public intellectuals and public figures. So these are the three chapters I'm working on now. Okay. So that's there to remind me that these are the these most are important the things. These are the things I focus on. And as I'm reading and as I'm looking for information, yeah, you know, yeah. that's the filter through which everything kind of cool. comes. Well, it kind of keeps you oh yeah on task nice and, and over long, and over a longer period yeah, of time. It yeah, keeps it tight. Yeah, I like I like that. Yeah. Okay. So maybe talk about the the approach, the genesis of that. And sure, sure. How so you tackled it. Um. So there's, I learned a lot doing it. Right. We talked about the rhythm of work as well, and that was a key thing for mm -hmm. me. 
Um, was it always your ambition, sorry, to, to write a book? Was it something you've it always was, wanted yeah. to do? It was yeah. something I've always wanted to do. So there's always a book in somebody, they say that or whatever, yeah. Yeah, uh, I guess so. It's get, getting it yeah. out is the hard part, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I I went back to do my PhD with the ambition of writing it as a book. Okay. Uh, some people do a PhD and they'll you know write it as papers to be published in journals. Yeah. And that's one way of doing it, but I always wanted it to, to be a book. Um, so that was the ambition. Um, but the, the first piece of advice is not to do it like I did it, right? Don't have twins and then try and write a book. <laughs> right. Um, cause that, so that was... To that <laughs> that's a, seems a pretty obvious one that I didn't pay any attention to. Yeah. Um, but that was the first one. Uh, uh, the, and the other couple of things, one good thing and one uh, thing that I learned a lot from uh, and the bit that I learned a lot from was, whereas early in my career as a journalist, I got used to turning stuff around very quickly and producing, producing, producing. Yeah. When I had a little bit more time and more time to think about the book and the chapters that I was writing, um, I found myself sort of drafting too much and working a little bit too much. Right. Um, in that, you know, trying to make each part of it as perfect as I could and yeah, really yeah, yeah. kind of... And you kind of lose a bit of perspective right. there, you know, in these long stretches of writing and you're kind of immersed in your work. You know, obviously need to make it as good as you can. Yeah. And obviously need to work very, very hard in it and be as careful as you can. But there comes a point where there really is diminishing returns. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And one more draft is not is really going to make yeah, yeah. not that much kind of progress mm. around it. And I found for a little while I got a little bit stuck right. in that I was, you know, rewriting parts and reworking parts that really didn't need didn't add the value didn't add the value or yeah. weren't communicating anything kind of new right um and i think part of it was just trying to make it as, the book as good as possible but mm. uh it got in the way for a while and i remember i had a good long sit down with my with my sort of mentor uh there in in the u.s his name is roger street matter and he is like he was the perfect academic he was a great colleague he was brilliant at teaching mm. he was adored by his students and he's written, I think, 10 books or something, right? right? So he was just really, really good and one of the nicest uh, men I've ever met. But he would sit down and we'd talk about these kind of things. And he said that for, you know, for years he had a little plaque on his desk. Mm. And it's, uh, you know, it's this hackneyed phrase now, but I, at the time I found it really important. It was like, don't let the quest for the perfect get in, in the way of the good. Yeah. You know that old phrase. The, the e, was it the perfection is the evil of good, yeah, good that, enough? Yeah, 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 yeah that's yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. That's it. And so, you know, it's it's not an excuse just to do stuff that's good enough because that'll more than likely be not very good at all. Mm. But it, I was getting too hung up in trying to make it super perfect, and of yeah. course, nothing ever can be. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that was a good. That was a kind of a key moment. Cool. And so from then on, I kind of sent chapters to friends and colleagues mm. who would look at it, and then when they made suggestions, I would implement those suggestions but it was moving it along then were you giving yourself deadlines for it though or was that something that you had loose deadlines or would that have helped uh, no there was a hard deadline for the publisher okay um, that they needed the manuscript by a certain time right and uh, so I had to kind of adhere to that because you know I signed a contract and this but they was weren't the giving you milestones along the way to sending in the first 10 chapters or, or anything no like no that. it was like it was, all or it was like whatever date it was it was the whole thing okay um, so that meant you, you could go back and tinker with certain kind of stuff yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so getting towards the end I you know stopped you know I just focused on making it as good as it could be mm -hmm. and uh, and getting it off you okay. know because uh, again it's it, 
and it's funny how things earlier in your career kind of come back to you as well. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's a good piece of journalism advice I think I read, and it's kind of, you know, you go out and report a story, you'll interview people, you gather details, you do your research, and you go back to the office and you'll start to write, and you kind of think, oh. I wish I, I should have done this or I should have talked to this person or I should have talked to this person yeah. or I should have done this. And every journalist knows this. And yeah. Everybody who's doing a piece of work knows this. Uh, but the advice was write the story you have, not the story you wished you had. Mm. And that's very useful. So it's right. kind of like, this is what I have. I'm going to tell this as best I can. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, ship it, get it up, get rid of it there. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. if you're the type of person who, you know, tinker with something for ages and ages yeah. and ages, it just won't get finished and you won't be able to kind of move on from it. Mm. And ac- academic careers are additive, you know, it's, mm. you know, your future work builds on your earlier work and you kind of develop things. So did you develop any kind of self-governing rules as you went through the process to, I and mean, maybe that's a strange term, I made it up as I went there, but it's like, um, I, I'm only allowing myself three rewrites of this chapter or, or, or just certain things to, to allow that process to continue to flow or anything come up that you just didn't expect you'd uh, use to, to keep things moving. Um, it's funny. It's strange since I'm right, working on another book now and I've worked on papers and stuff since, since then. And so a lot of the stuff that, that I learned from my, the first book mm. about just moving things on and, you know, not overdrafting and when something is good and leave it for a while. Yeah. I was kind of writing something and then going back to it too quickly. Right. Whereas if you write something, leave it for a few days, mm. go back to it. If it's still good and you're happy with it, then yeah, yeah it's yeah. more than likely f- fine and you can kind of move on. So I've taken in my subsequent work, I've been mm. better at doing stuff and moving on a little bit more. But in terms of kind of uh, rules, I guess I developed these rules after I submitted the book manuscript because <laughs> I had a hard deadline and yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. was it. And I was focused on getting that in. But since then, you know, I'm much more relaxed about kind of writing. I'm much more relaxed about sure. um, it not being perfect, It move, you know, moving it along, getting feedback and not sort of holding as tightly to it, I guess. And at the end of the process, did you do like, a, this is me, the project manager, and me doing kind of a lessons learned review of this worked well, this didn't, this is what I can actually implement in my next book? Uh, yes but it took me about five or six months to actually let it settle to let it settle and to get any sort of perspective on it at all because Mm -hmm. I was you know I had a semester off teaching so I was basically you know working really intensely at it over time and it was just too intense you couldn't look at it uh, clearly Uh, so I don't know in project management terms that's probably (laughs) a huge era afterwards but after five or six months I could pinpoint what I was doing well and uh, yeah. what, you know, in the process this time I'm not. When you were making decisions during the writing after you go back to it after a few days or a few weeks, how were you deciding it? Do you think you were deciding it from a from a gut perspective, intuitively to say that's good enough or are we letting your brain kind of left side can make, make decisions there? Um, I think you know, I think, well, I think intuition is, is you know, you've talked about this with many of your other guests and I think the kind of consensus is right is intuition is sort of not your accumulated knowledge mm. plus your expertise yeah all kind of come together to make okay. a decision so you know having read so much and written so much over years i i get a sense of what's good mm. and what's not good the difficulty is when you start you're too close to it and yeah. it's too intense and you start second guessing mm. it there if you can the best thing to do is to move away for a little while right and then come back to it yeah when you're a little bit more chilled out 
yeah. and you can be a little bit more kind of detached, I guess, from it. Mm. But trying to evaluate too close to when you finish it yeah, is, yeah, a, yeah. is a kind of a problem. Yeah. And another element that it's good for people who write stuff is to separate the, the writing and editing parts. Yeah. Uh, you know, write something all the way through and then go back and edit it. Mm. For me, writing and editing at the same time, mm. they're kind of, they're two different skills, two different kind of right, ways right. of working and they kind of came into conflict with each other a little bit. Okay. Cool. So I guess, I guess most people who write a book have similar kind of stories. Yeah. Especially on their first book. But I think people who write a lot of books seem to have a lot of these rhythms down. But rhythm is the key thing. Rhythm and routine. Right. And consistent work over a long period of time is what will lead to a result. Did you do any research in how to write a book as opposed to actually what you're writing it on? Just kind of, was there I mean, what you were taking? Uh, the, the research, I didn't do any kind of systematic kind of research on it now, but there's... There's good essays and books by writers about how they write, and mm -hmm. how to do things. And the approaches are kind of different. Right. So you take, uh, you know, Graham Greene, the famous British novelist who always wrote 500 words a day. Right. No matter what. Right. There was uh, Stephen King, who has a great memoir about writing. I think it's called On Writing. And I might be wrong about this, but King, uh, if you wonder why Stephen King writes so much, you know, this will help explain it. You know, he had a thing where he has to write 2000 words a day. Right. So he sits down at whatever time, and if he writes 2,000 words in two hours, he's done. He goes off about his day. But sometimes he might have to stay in his office until dinner time, but he will stay in his office until he gets the 2,000 words. Right. Another way, and I think it's kind of close to how I work, you know, did you ever read anything by Neil Stevenson? He's kind of a sci-fi, interesting, fancy kind of writer. He's very good. He writes these enormous, big tomes of books, Okay. some of which I think are really, really good. But he wrote an essay about it about kind of writing and managing his time and stuff. And it's yeah. really good. But he he talks also about the, the four-hour blocks. Right. If he gets four-hour blocks consistently, he makes progress. If there are interruptions or he can't schedule his time, mm. he doesn't make progress. Right. So I found that a better way than trying to count words, which doesn't really work for me. But if I have the periods of time um, regularly with the same routines uh, every day, you know, I come in here to my office about half seven or eight, and I'm in for four hours, right? Doing my writing, and then I can do my other stuff. Cool. That's what leads to progress. Yeah, and you get that once you get that piece done, you feel the day is a success. Whatever happens from yeah, there on out, like, exactly, right? exactly. Yeah. And uh, I've also become a little bit more patient in that some days I'm working on it for four hours, but there doesn't seem to be four hours of work mm. at the end of it. And again, I used to get frustrated at this. It's like I put in four hours. You know, where's where's the output? Where's the result? Yeah. But I've since found that usually the next day is really good. You catch up on that. Yeah, thing. it is a big kind of catch up. Whatever's happening yeah, 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 in your yeah. mind, it just kind of it's working out these kind of things. And the next day is usually better. Right. So I've become a little bit more patient around this kind of stuff. So it's like an average over the course of a week or so. You'll, yeah. You'll, you'll hit the, the sweet spot. I yeah, exactly. Yeah. If I have these times over the course of a week and I do it regularly. Yeah. Then there will be definitely be something at the end of the week. Cool. So obviously with the first book done yeah and complete you've mentioned a couple of times you're writing more so your 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 passion is still burning around book writing oh it really is yeah it really yeah. is um i mean i i love writing i love reading i mean you know the week's not complete for me unless i've put in a good lot of hours kind of mm. writing stuff and, and getting stuff done i think writing just books all the time would be too much so i write you know, articles for journals, I write chapters of books, I write the occasional bit of journalism. Yeah. Because just writing books on their own is 
it's too intense mm. and it can be too much of kind of going down the rabbit hole of yeah. just working on one project over a huge long period of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I like to mix it around a little bit more now and write in different types just to a little bit of variety is kind yeah. of as well. So to, to bring it back to where you're at right now, so you're yeah. doing all of that, but you're also lecturing and pro you're a professor here in DCU um, on... Uh, well, lecture in communications yeah. uh, is is my title, and I uh, teach different things. Like I teach everything from like a basic news reporting course to a graduate research methods course to PhD supervision to um, you know writing features. I, I taught a class over the last couple of years in sports journalism, mm. which has been really really good, really really interesting. You know, lots of Tottenham focused features there as a side reading. Great, really good. Yeah, good. Uh, <laughs> too much Arsenal in this podcast. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so, that it, but my year kind of is, you know, one semester of teaching before uh, Christmas, one semester of teaching after Christmas, and then the rest of the year is for research and writing. Okay. So it's hard to get a ton of stuff done during the semester, mm. but your focus is more on my teaching at that. Cool. So Dick, I think we're up to about an hour and a half, maybe in the kind of classical style of just doing a few random questions just yeah. based on everything we talked about. And I think to tie it back to the start, you have so much going on. And I know you're married with two... Uh, son and a daughter. Oh, son and a daughter, sorry. Yeah, exactly. um, and they're obviously a big part of your life. So how do you mix everything together, work and, and life? Uh, well, it's, you know, a lot of parenting is logistics, right? So uh, it's kind of my wife and I, we kind of work on a lot of these things together. Yeah. You know, it's kind of really is, you know, she is a Pilates teacher and has her own business in Rush, the Pilates loft. And so she's running that. So it's a lot of kind of dividing the time in that she will you know, be looking after them a lot after school. And then in the evening, I'll get home and she'll go off to work and I'll take care of the kids in the evening. Mm. We kind of just, it's really planning a lot of this kind of stuff. So yeah. um, making sure that, you know, your days and weeks are as, not regimented or anything like that, but just that you kind of know what you're going to be at every mm. day. And, you know, I know and Louisa knows what each other will, will be kind of doing. So it's, 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 it, you know, I tend not to think about it as planning my work and then planning my home life. We tend to try and think of the whole together. Right. And some weeks where it's very busy with the family, you just know work isn't going to be the priority that yeah, week. Yeah, or yeah. some days, some weeks you'll have very urgent work stuff. And so we'll have to shift things around a little bit to, to get it to that stage. But it's, um, you know, once you kind of... There would be a routine though, I there guess. There is, a, oh, definitely yeah. a routine. Yeah, definitely a routine. And, you know, I, I really like... You know, I, I would have a tendency sometimes to overwork and work too much. So it's mm. one of real great benefit of families. You can totally switch off. You can pull yourself away from it. Oh, then. Yeah, yeah, totally pull yourself away and kind of uh, immerse yourself in playing with the kids and things like that. That's really, really nice. The idea, you know, the word flow, what's the guy's name? I oh, yeah. can't pronounce it. Mikhail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is, is your flow, would you say that's your meditation, as in your writing? Are you kind of in a state of flow when you do that? Uh some writers talk about this and I really envy them. It's never been the case for me. Really? Yeah. More slog than flow. Okay. It really? has been for me. Yeah. You're probably too self-critical though, I'd imagine. Oh, I don't know. Maybe, yeah. I, I don't know. It's, I, I, <laughs> I read flow and it's a great book. Um, maybe I have these flow states for like maybe five minutes or 10 minutes. Yeah. And then yeah. it's back to the, the kind of slog state. Right. Most of all. Yeah. But it's more just a function of regularity and hours. And would you have other, would you, would you meditators or any kind of approach you would have to, to kind of be in the moment and do, you know, if, if, if it's those five or six minutes, that's probably nice five or six minutes to be in. But is there other approaches you have to, to kind of just uh, be? I, 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 
I used to do a lot of running, um, mm. and I found it was you'd enter. I don't know what a meditative state feels like, mm. but it would seem like I got there when you're running. You know, it's kind of kind of very calm, blissful kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I'm getting old now. My knees are not great, so <laughs> I do a lot of uh, cycling now, right. and that's really really nice because you get out into nature. You get to, you're you're immersed in the natural world, and that's really really nice. Yeah, and that kind of resets you a little bit. Um, but you're Demands a little bit more concentration than uh, than running. But what I about think the Pilates? Do you do any? I do Pilates indeed, um, yeah. and I found that very very beneficial because I'm mm. sitting at my desk a lot, yeah. crunched over, sure. and uh, it's nice having a Pilates teacher at home who can <laughs> yeah, wor- yeah. work with me on these kind of things. So I found that hugely beneficial, mm. even at the end of the day, if you do ten minutes of yeah, yeah. basic kind of stuff, it really mm. does kind of. And it is tied to meditation, mindfulness a lot as well. You know, yeah. so even yoga and the starting at the end, they do a lot of. of the, the breathing exercise the breathing exercise and just just centering. The, the actual practice of just doing it yeah and forcing yourself to it's a habit then to, to, to kind of you know stay in one place and do these kind of exercises I found very beneficial yeah but I think without the exercise more generally um, I I, you know it's 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 kind of a sensor now as well for me you mm. know try and work out regularly one of the benefits here in DCU the gym just sure not too far away so Four or five times a week, I'll do. Yeah, yeah. I'll do it's, a good, it's essential for the head as well as, really as the body, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah I think yeah. everybody realizes they're waking up to that, certainly over the last few years. On, on, on these kind of things about sort of exercise and diet and stuff like that, there's a, there's a book I recommend. Yeah. Your, your listeners, I think it's really, really good. It's um, it's called the, the Cure for Everything. Right. And I think it's Untangling the Twisted Messages about Science and Health. Okay. Or Diet and Health. And it's by a guy called Timothy Caulfield, Tim okay. Caulfield. And he's a health law professor uh, right. in Canada. And uh, so he's looked at a lot of these kind of stuff in his professional work. But he wrote this book and it's about sort of, you know, what's the real state of knowledge around mm. diet and exercise and, uh, you know, vitamins and all these kind mm. of things. Because, you know, these are massive industries, multi-billion pound industries trying to sell us stuff. Mm. So he tried to see, well, actually, what's the, the evidence behind? What's the science behind a lot yeah, of these yeah. things about what really works? And the book is really, really good. It's really well written, very right. clearly written. But he's kind of a char- he's a character in it as well. Okay. So, you know, he tries different diets. He tries different um, exercise routines, and he kind right, of right, summarizes right. the state of knowledge around them. Okay. So it's a really, really good read, and it it brings together a ton of really good scientific research okay. about the you know best ways to exercise, best way to think about nutrition and diet, and these kind of things. Yeah. So it's I assign it to my students, and I highly recommend it. Brilliant to read. Do you listen to Sam Harris's podcast at all? Like occasionally, I do. Yes. Yeah, there was a guy actually. I uh, can ch- check it afterwards. He he was on his show there a couple of weeks back, and it was all the truth about diet and fats, and very interesting. Like his 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 podcasts are very deep and interesting, and can be quite uh, inflammatory, I guess, with some of the guests and stuff. But this one was quite interesting, and um, I don't. I, it could be the same person. I, I don't know, but uh, yeah. I'll, I'll mention it afterwards. But he's his are his are quite uh, quite quite interesting. To it it might to be. It sounds similar. It's. I mean, uh, Coffee's book is is excellent because it does bust a lot of myths around. Yeah. These kind of things, you know, when mm. you, you can tone a specific area, or you can sort of yeah, you know, certain types of diets will lead to the, you know, it's it kind of cuts through all that hype. Yeah. And commercialism and looks at what what is the state of knowledge around this kind yeah, of really. Yeah, yeah. And you know what are the best decisions you can make in your life to kind of mm. live more healthily is very good. Yeah, no, that sounds like another one to add to this uh, ridiculously growing list. Um, 
just look, like I'm definitely not going to ask you the question. What books would you recommend? Because you've you've recommended about ten. I know. Actually, go on. Give me give me one if you had to give one to stand out. All right. Okay. So uh, okay. Uh, so like, uh, the uh, cure for everything is a good one to read. Uh, definitely, the accidental creative is one I'd recommend reading. Getting things done is a good one to read. But more a more sort of deeper text, I guess. Mm-hmm. Philosophical one is uh, one I always have beside my bed, and it's uh, letters from a stoic. Uh, by Seneca so, oh, Seneca and Aurelius and those guys are on the same time yeah it's yeah. Seneca and Aurelius around the same time Seneca's a little bit better it's, it's right. better to read and uh, so he's writing these series of letters to a younger friend of his and he's it, it, they're just about life and yeah, yeah, yeah. and you know the Stoics and Stoicism is kind of well known kind of mm. idea there's been a few popular books around trying to apply the, the Stoical ideas but I'd say go to the original source yeah, yeah, right? yeah. do you think it's going to be this book right it's, you know, it's not it's going to be like you know terrible translations of Latin and are very hard to read yeah, but yeah. any of the translations are really really good yeah, yeah, yeah. and I really recommend going to the source again there so it's kind of these letters just talking about life and how to live a good life and a lot of the things that you talk about here is kind of you know clearing out the unimportant things focusing on the most important things yeah. how, to, how to sort of really focus in on what's the most important and I'd, I'd recommend that letters from a stoic mm. and is there a lot of I've, I've listened to it because Tim Ferriss has I think put it on Audible in because uh, he's huge into Stoicism and Marcus Aurelius and, and all of that. And he, he sometimes has somebody do a 10-minute reading of it in a small little chunk episodes that he does kind of in between episodes he calls them. But uh, some of it is, it, it's quite, it, there's a lot of metaphors in it, I'd imagine. And, it, it you know, it, it's just, there's multiple layers, isn't there, to it that you really need to get into or you can... You can interpret it, I suppose, in a lot of ways. Do you find it it's, uh, well, acquired? No, I think it's actually it's actually quite straightforward. I find. Okay, right. I mean, part of the stoic thing is to you know keep it simple, keep like, it yeah. simple, and yeah, keep it straightforward. Yeah. And often, I think there's is this perceived barrier to reading the original text. You think it's going to be yeah, you know, so shrouded in you know, you know, very sort of uh, high level language or technical language, but it's not at all. And it's straight to the point, very easy to read. And mm. I, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, go to the source first. Yeah. Read that first, and then you can read the other stuff around it. Yeah, and get yeah. more out of it. But yeah, cool. de- definitely go to go straight to the, the, yeah. the well on this. One. And it is a it is a like a reference book that you could probably just leave lying around and just pick up from time to time and oh, stuff like that. Most yeah. definitely. I mean, it's structured as a series of letters. Yeah, right? they're all maybe you know eight hundred, nine hundred words. So a great thing to do is is read one letter. Think about it for a while. Read another letter. Think about it for a while. Yeah, yeah. It bears rereading. You'll find something new every time you look at it. Again. Yeah, cool. I definitely. Uh, I've been meaning to get that for a while, actually. So I, I will. Um, one final one, then, Deck. Uh, I guess advice. You know, what's the best piece of advice you've been given during your life? Is there anything that stands out? And is it one that you could, you know, potentially share with people? Because, you know, not not being from a biased perspective, but you've had a really interesting journey so far uh kind of proud to know you from that perspective uh thanks so much for doing you know doing this it's been a learning for me as well but uh you know down through the years anything that sticks out from an advice perspective you could uh you've like uh, held close and that you might like to share um i i think You know, it's kind of looking back on your kind of career, you can, it seems more linear than it actually kind of was. Mm. Um, and I think uh, a couple of things that I've found useful is kind of, is is to, you know, so much talk about passion and follow your passion and do what you're kind of passionate about. And it's often hard to really 
dig down into what that means. Mm. Um, so I've always found just just try and try a few different things mm. and just immerse yourself into them and jump into them and see mm. kind of what you like. Um, you know, especially earlier in your career, you know, if you're, it's often helpful to find out what you don't like early. Yeah. To kind of rule that out and move on to kind of other things as well. Yeah. But, you know, uh, I don't like this idea of kind of as if you're sitting around waiting for some passion to well up inside yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, try different things and immerse yourself in them. And that's the way to find what you're interested in and you like kind of doing. Yeah. But once you find that, try and arrange everything else in your life around that. Okay. Nice. Nice ending, Deck. Thanks so much. If people want to get in touch with you, I know I'm going to include all of this in, in the end, but how could you reach out? Maybe just plug your book if people oh, would like sure. to read that. Well, uh, the, the book is The New Celebrity Scientists, Out of the Lab and Into the Limelight. Um, and it's you can read it if you're interested in popular science writers. If you're interested in Stephen Hawking, Richard Dawkins, Stephen Pinker, uh, Stephen Jay Gould, people like that. Um, it'll be of interest to you. Um, you can reach me through the DC website, Declan Fahey, F-A-H-Y, or I'm always on uh, Twitter at Fahey Declan, F-A-H-Y-D-E-C-L-A-N. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Dec, again. It's been uh, one hour, 43 so minutes of enjoyable time on a Monday. Uh, thanks for giving your time up for that, for that as well. Oh, my pleasure, Rob. Thank you so much. Take care. Hey folks, you got to the end of another show. Thank you for persisting. I hope you enjoyed it as much as the others. So I'm just going to put a quick shout out for feedback. You can get in touch with me through the site. You can get in touch through Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. It's all on the robofthegreen.ie site and you can take it from there. Also, I'd love if you listen to on iTunes, leave a comment, give us a score out of five on the stars that are so much commonplace these days. I would really appreciate that if you did it. Whether it's good or bad, I can certainly take that. We'll, we'll make some improvements as we go. And yeah, I, I'll keep it short. I hope you enjoyed and I look forward to having you back for some more 1% Better podcasts in the future. Thank you and good luck.